some of the journey is about seeing that do you want to spend your whole life trying to look like an ideal or do you want to get on with life and do some really amazing exciting things with your life because we know this world needs the amazing exciting things that you're going to do hello and welcome to the inside out institute podcast thanks for joining us I'm Steph Boulay, the host of the podcast, and for this episode, we're talking about trauma and eating disorders, and our guest is Dr. Sophie Reed. She's a clinical psychologist, researcher, and co-director of the Birch Tree Centre, which is a specialist centre in trauma, addiction, and eating disorders in Sydney. As we know, often underlying an eating disorder is trauma, but trauma can also lead to a range of other mental health conditions. And in this episode, we discuss why that is. We also discuss what exactly trauma is, what are the impacts of trauma, how it can be treated, and what are the goals of treatment. But first, as always, we're gonna start this episode with the voice of the lived experience. Sabina Manalis has been a professional actor since she was 18. You may have seen her in shows like Underbelly, Neighbours and the Logie winning comedy series Housos. She also does a lot of commercials and other online content. On top of that, she is a mum to a seven-year-old boy, works for Australia's largest digital platform for young people, Year 13, and she's a registered psychotherapist. Here's Sabina's story. I developed, uh, I would say, binge eating disorder when I was 13, after a home invasion, I was almost kidnapped. I developed PTSD symptoms, like flashbacks. I started binging to cope with the anxiety and all of the pain that I was feeling. So every time I would get a lot of anxiety or have a flashback, I would just binge and binge and binge and binge. Um, Even though I guess the binging started from this trauma and the PTSD symptoms I think because body image is such a huge shame trigger for women especially in our society I got fixated on my body and the way I looked because I already had low self-worth and then when I looked in the mirror I just saw ugly Um, and then I felt a lot of shame from binging and purging in secret and things like that I just remember walking around like a zombie. I was kind of alive but not really living. Um, I remember I had to stop working because I was shaking at work from such bad anxiety. Um, I ruined a lot of friendships as well because I was just, I was doing behaviors that weren't me. I guess binging is an addiction. I see it as an addiction and When you're addicted to something, you will do anything to get it. So unfortunately, I lost some really close friendships. It was just a deep, deep, dark um, 10 years of my life at least. Part of the problem was that my family wasn't really around. I left uh, my mom's when I was 15 so I could study performing arts. Um, And I moved in with my dad, but he wasn't really around a lot either. And so I just felt like I was dealing with it all on my own. And then I moved to Sydney when I was 17 on my own. So yeah, I just felt very, very alone. Um, If I wasn't always striving to be an actor, then I would have had nothing. The training that we do, it helped me a lot in one sense. And also it gave me purpose. But 
in another sense, there's so much rejection and you go into an audition and you feel good about yourself and then you see 20, 30 other actors in the room that are gorgeous and talented and you can't help but compare yourself to them. I got into a toxic, very, very toxic relationship and he introduced me to crack cocaine. Um, So I was 19 by this point. I wasn't really binging and purging then. I just stopped. Um, I think because I developed these other behaviors, it just turned into something else. Um, And then I was addicted to that for, I don't know, maybe six months. I think when I realized I was addicted, there was a point where I came home and I was full-on addict looking for the pipe I can't believe I'm saying this either but I was I found it and it was smashed and I was trying to put it together and I was trying to smoke this empty pipe and it was like a movie you know and when I realized that I was addicted I just stopped cold turkey um the thing is these behaviors weren't me and deep deep down I knew that this is not the person that I am so I just stopped and then I auditioned for an acting school in Melbourne um when I was 20 weeks pregnant actually I had stopped drugs and everything months before I got pregnant but after I got out of that toxic situation it kind of gave me space to figure out who I am Um, and there were different people in my life that kind of helped me a lot I had a dance partner he had experienced quite severe trauma when he was a child and when he met me he just said what happened to you I was like what do you mean at this point I was had no idea that my behaviors were abnormal and um there was a moment where I just realized that I hated myself um and I just I was sabotaging my life because I guess I just didn't think I was worthy of having a good life And yeah, when I realized that, then I could build myself up again. But I think you have to want to, you really have to want to change things. Um, And for me, I did. And I just let myself feel everything that I was suppressing with the food. I just let myself feel. And then I was like, then I kind of psychoanalyzed myself. Like, why am I crying? Oh, it's my dad, it's my this, it's my that, whatever. And then one by one, I kind of just, every time I went to, I would go for that thing to make me feel better, I just said no. And I let myself sit with all the emotion and I went through everything in my life to figure out what was happening. So I think I realized that I'm really capable of feeling all of that emotion and that was really powerful. So my only addiction now is coffee, but (laughs) that's almost everyone, right? Um, No, look, I'm so aware now that I know what I'm doing, but then I wasn't conscious. I was just behaving and I had no idea why or what was going on. But now, you know, it's not like, it's not like I'm never anxious or I don't ever feel ugly, for example. But if I wake up one morning, I can feel in my body if I'm anxious and then I do the things that I know I need to do. So I have little self-care rituals, put on incense, make sure I go outside. I study at the beach a lot because I just, I need the ocean. So life now, I just, I feel so capable and I feel so empowered and I 
feel like I have this strong sense of self um, and I really do believe that anybody that is suffering from an eating disorder, I really do believe that you can fully recover. You're listening to the Inside Out Institute podcast, rethinking eating disorders from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Sophie Reed. Sophie has many years' experience researching and working with people with trauma and with eating disorders. As she explains, she developed an understanding of and a passion for mental health and social justice from a very young age. I think my whole life has been psychology. So um, my family actually fostered children. I shared a bedroom with foster siblings from the age of six onwards. So I was a kid who kind of understood um, enormous social injustice in the world. And my passion has always really um, been with working with children and working with children, adolescents. And having seen, having, you know, shared a bedroom and spent time and lived with people who couldn't live with their family of origin, mostly for traumatic reasons, mostly due to abuse, um, sometimes due to severe mental health. One of my siblings had, um, her birth mother had severe OCD um, and she lived with us because life wasn't regular for her. Um, And I think the thing is that when you see childhood, when you see the injustice of childhood not being good enough for people, you understand in many ways how that leads to adult mental health difficulties and problems later on. And so for me, I've worked with lots and lots of families with the, um, with the aim to kind of intercept and really help families get into healthy functioning to then kind of be the, you know, the circuit breaker in sort of development of difficulties. Um, and when I worked in eating disorders at the Children's Hospital and when I worked in drug and alcohol, Um, time and time again the underlying causes were childhood experiences of trauma. And what do you think the interventions are for families that that you've seen are most effective in those kind of environments? I think there's a lot of stuff there around, to be honest, really around social justice. So issues around poverty and employment, housing, um, access to equitable um, schooling. So, you know, schooling where all kids are welcome as opposed to only the good kids are welcome. If you kind of look at things like, um, you know, um, Aboriginal people, Indigenous populations worldwide, you've got sort of intergenerational trauma from colonialism. So mm. it's quite broad, this space. Um, family interventions, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the kind of things that we say is as a parent, I think parenting is the great call to clean up your own mental health and that if you don't clean up your mental health, you'll pass it on to your kids. And so you have to sort out your stuff, but... Um, so you don't transmit it onto your children because otherwise you raise your children with your own kind of wounding and your own mental health problems. Yeah, which is scary really for parents. Oh my God, yeah, it's terrifying. Where does trauma come into this? Like what is trauma? So there's, we think of trauma in terms of um, omission and commission. So omission is when things are done to a child or done to a person that should never be done. So those are the obvious things that people think about in terms of childhood sexual abuse, um, physical abuse, emotional abuse, so um, yelling um, and like really vicious yelling. Um, every parent at some point, you know, loses their temper. Um, And uh, psychological abuse. So some of that really kind of, you know, terrorising children and things like that. And then you've got, um, so that was um, commission. Sorry, I said omission before. That's commission. And then you've got traumas of omission. Now that's stuff that should be done for a child that isn't done for a child. So that's neglect. That's 
that's um, parents who aren't very attuned to their child who miss kind of messages of um, despair and hopelessness. That's we see a lot of neglect when it comes to um, you know poverty or you know very dangerous kind of neighbourhoods where. Um, the safe tuning into children's needs of attachment and care and love are not possible because the neighbourhood might be terribly unsafe. So neglect can come from um, parents both working and hardly being home. It can come from parents having a mental illness. Neglect can come if your parents um, have um, drug dependency, so they're prioritising things other than being safe, being a safe, secure landing space for their kids. And so what the research has shown, and Martin Tisha has done most of the research on this he's actually shown that um, neglect can have as strong an impact on a child's developing brain as as um, traumas of commission so those things like childhood sexual abuse and physical abuse the difficulty is with the difference between commission and omission is that it's very hard to put into words what you haven't had so it's easy to say these things were done to me it's not easy at all but it's 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 easier to understand things were done to me that shouldn't have been done. Mm. But it's really hard to understand that um, things that should have been done weren't done. And what happens with kids is that kids are hardwired to keep um, a good attachment with their primary caregivers. If you don't have good attachment with your primary caregiver and you're five, you probably won't survive in the wild. So if we go back to terms of evolution, yeah. babies need parents to keep them alive. And so what tends to happen in childhood is that children will blame themselves when something goes wrong with a parent. Because in their mind, if they don't have a good enough parent, then there is no survival. And so what happens with those sort of, um, sometimes with trauma, is that children will actually blame themselves for trauma that has occurred to them in their childhood. So a classic one is, I was just a really bad kid. Not that actually my mum or dad had a major alcohol problem. Yeah, right. And so what we do in therapy is really unpick that and go, well, tell me what you did. And, you know, um, my client might say, oh, you know, I wouldn't go to bed and I stayed up late. And I'd say, well, that sounds really normal. That sounds like a regular kind of kid pushing boundaries. And sort of unpicking some of that starts to help, you know, help people see that maybe this actually was trauma as opposed to, you know, that they were the person who was at fault for the things that went wrong in their family. Can you explain the relationship between trauma and eating disorders? Yeah, absolutely. You know, to me, I tend to take an addiction model to eating disorders. So an addiction model is that really there's a pain inside that that we're attempting to avoid. I think all humans have an addiction. Everybody has a weak spot. If you think about your worst day possible at work, when you get home, you're not about to at that moment do something terribly, terribly healthy. You're more likely to grab for the thing that you want that soothes you. So every human has an addiction in some way. So it can be obviously drugs and alcohol. It can be food. It can be sweet food. It can be work. It can be Facebook or you know Instagram. It can be, um, you know, uh, addiction to telling the story over and over again. It can be, there's lots of different things that we do um, to try and soothe ourselves. Food absolutely is a soother in that moment. We know mm -hmm. that sweet food releases endorphins. It sort of reinstates that sense of, um, you know, reconnection to self in lots of ways. Um, but if it gets out of control, that's where it becomes an eating disorder. How does that relate to, say, restrictive eating disorders? So 
if you are if you've had the worst day ever and you feel totally out of control and like you're the shittest person in the world because you've had this terrible terrible day our society says in particular to women well just lose some weight and you'll be better right it starts in that space but it also becomes this obsessive preoccupation with calorie counting um uh meal calorie counting meal planning uh you know recipe screening and all of that is can lead to sort of really um distraction so you don't actually have to think about the thing that you're upset about and every human has an addiction we all know what we have to keep eyes on for ourselves it's the thing it's when it gets out of control that it becomes the problem right and we stop when we stop exercising the muscle of maybe i need to self-soothe and and be kind and compassionate with myself it's a really hard muscle to exercise because we're always told to do more be more yes i guess a lot of people think of big t or the term big t Mm. trauma when they Mm. think of trauma and a lot of the things you've mentioned i guess a lot of people wouldn't register as trauma what does what 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 does that mean for people? Um, I I tend to have a, a slight discomfort um, using terms like big T and little T trauma from a clinical perspective. Um, I find that it can be quite invalidating for my clients, and it's really interesting because people tend to minimise their own trauma anyway. So people will say, "Oh yeah, but other people had it much worse than me," mm. um, and that just invalidates and minimises the experience that the individual had. Essentially, everybody's experience is valid. Everybody's experience um, is um, should be paid attention to, and sometimes you know, um, one big event you know, is not really comparable to lots of moments of not actually having good enough parenting. Um, one of the other ways into, um, you know, children who can be really misattuned to is also having a parent who's entirely narcissistic, who actually will only give love if the child um, fares well or looks, you know, does well or reflects well on the parent, but actually withholds that love and criticises when the child isn't reflecting well on that parent. Um, Mm. that's incredibly devastating for a child to experience along that way because the number one thing that children need is social connection and love they need safety attachment and love Um, and then they need obviously food and shelter and those sorts of things Um, and so if you're really making safety attachment and love dependent upon behaving well then that child's really going to experience lots of misconnection with their parents along the way so people who think who are minimising and think mm. what they've experienced isn't a big deal, it wasn't a big single trauma, what would be your message to them? Um, I, you know, I um, think that we take it case by case. I think that we don't actually have to compare, we don't have to work out who has the worse experience than the other. I often say it's all, you know, it's all crap, it's just different shades of crap in terms <laughs> of trauma. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. So. Um, you know why would we why would we compare every trauma and every traumatic childhood is is distinct in and of itself you can never repeat it again really and even between siblings we see that there are really different experiences of parenting within one family unit because sometimes parents are really well connected to one child by a you know personality match yeah. and not connected to another child you know, if you look at the age difference, so often people are two and three years apart from their siblings. There might be a major change in finances in that house or a major change of jobs in that house that lead the parent to behave differently. Yeah. One of the groups who can be most invalidating around trauma can be siblings. 
So siblings can often say to, you know, the black sheep in parentheses around that, the black sheep of the family, that, um, oh, you know, mum and dad weren't that bad. You know, you were just really difficult. Yeah, the other kids are okay. The other kids are okay. Yeah. But that doesn't, that has no validity because that the experience of that person was, they were the one who was targeted maybe. Yeah, or just didn't have the connection with the parent like another sibling did. Yeah. So what about the impacts of trauma? What is the research on, you know, impacts on the brain? I think the best thing to sort of think about in terms of trauma is to think about, I, when, I, when I'm working with someone, I think about what sort of childhood um, or what experiences led to this person sitting in front of me today. So, you know, what's gone on in their lives that has led to, you know, maybe somebody who has... Um, who is hypervigilant, so that means, you know, always on the lookout for danger. Or somebody who's, um, who is jumpy, so maybe they really go into startle really quickly, loud noises make them jump, or they feel on edge all the time, or someone who's always got a knot in their chest. I think, right, well, what's happened in your childhood that's led you to feel that life is always dangerous? Because that's what that body messaging is all about. And so then we start to go, okay, well, where's this come from? How long have you been feeling this way? What's been going on? You know what possibly led you to feel this way so some of the things we do as as a clinician what i'm listening for is um and this is why i'm so grateful that i started my career in child and adolescent psychology is what i'm listening for is stories of healthy development i'm listening for patterns along the way of um of just you know like healthy regular development that you would want for any child in an environment that you know like your own child or children that are your nieces or nephews or people that you love and so I'm listening for that and then I'm listening for diversions from that pathway so was it the fact that there was a big divorce which is recoverable from absolutely but not necessarily sometimes it's not always if there's lots of conflict but was there a moment in that childhood or many moments in that childhood where somebody had mental health problems, there was a lot of conflict, there was a lot of stress, um, that there were a lot of, um, there was a lot of criticism, there was a lot of hopes put on that child to be the person that, you know, whatever the parent might have needed to along that way. Um, and, and of course, this is multi-generational as well, because you know, I've worked with many, many parents. I've worked in the juvenile justice system. I haven't met a parent yet who doesn't love their kid. No parent wants to harm their child. Yeah. However, we bring our own wounding to the to the nature of raising our kids. So, and sometimes we do on, you know, um, we do. But I think in terms of the impacts on the brain, what we really see is if you have grown up in an unsafe household or unsafe neighbourhood, you will have a nervous system that feels more at home in fight or flight or sympathetic arousal than you do in relaxing, right? Because the expectation is, well, always be ready, always be ready, always be ready. The old fashioned term for that is wait for the other shoe to drop. You know, it's the whole kind of be ready, something could go wrong, be ready, something could go wrong. And that's kind of what we see is that there's a nervous system. And of course that's run by your amygdala in your brain at the very primary kind of level. So that's the, this little almond shaped organ in your brain, which sits kind of right in behind your temple that um, is your fight or flight, the seat of fight or flight. And it sends off all the messages which then get your heart pounding and your lungs um, going and your you know your hands shaking all of those fight or flight symptoms is run by your amygdala at the primary cause so what you would what you have is if you've grown up in an unsafe childhood um, then you have an amygdala that's ready ready to see danger where it may not be 
And so can this be rewired through therapy or? Absolutely, absolutely. So your amygdala is connected to, well, all of your brain is connected to each other. But what we do in, in therapy and what we do in adulthood is, is to really kind of say, it makes so much sense that you learnt to survive your world and your childhood like that. But is that needed right now, right here with me? Mm-hmm. And if it is, and I am presenting as scary, we've got to work that out together and I'll do whatever it takes to, to make the space feel safe. And if it's not needed right now, can we let it go? Can we breathe into it? And can we put some time and context around it so it allows those memories to go back into childhood as opposed to staying present and fresh? So if it's okay, I'd like to talk a little bit about trauma and memories. Mm -hmm. So when we go into fight or flight, we prioritise survival over laying down memories. So the seat of our brain that's in charge of putting context or time and date stamping our memories is called the hippocampus. When we go into fight or flight, the hippocampus shuts down and starts producing the hormones that are part of fight or flight, so cortisol and other kind of hormones. So what happens is with trauma memories, we lose the time and date stamp for them. That is so interesting. So they end up as memories that feel fresh and recurrent And Dan Siegel suggests that rattle around inside our um, short-term memory loop, but they don't go into long-term memory where they fade. What we want to do with trauma memories is let them come into the current and then bring our hippocampus online by saying, is this needed here and now? Is this happening here and now? We time and date stamp them in the here and now so that they then stop being such a trauma memory and allow them to go back into long-term memory where they can kind of fade out. So that's kind of the aim of all trauma therapies. So EMDR attempts to do that. Um, Graded cognitive exposure therapy tends to do that. Narrative um, therapy all tends to do that. It's the brain functioning that you're kind of going after that these different therapies do that allow you to stop the memory being a trauma memory and time and date stamp it so it doesn't feel so overwhelming. Do you think it's possible to do that on your own or do you really need the guidance of an expert to help you? Um, Well, I think that probably is dependent upon how overwhelming the memory is. So if the memory comes in like a flashback, so a flashback is where you feel like you're right there right now, that's really hard to regulate yourself back down from Mm. on your own. So humans are co-regulators. We rely on other people to regulate with us. We co-regulate with animals. We co-regulate with other people. Co-regulation means that if I see, if I suddenly become very afraid sitting here, you're going to become afraid with me, right? (laughs) And and my example of that is like, you know, if one sheep starts running in a group, because this is a mammalian process, all the sheep start running. Nobody knows why anyone's running, but we all start running together. So um, it depends on whether or not the experience of the traumatic memory exceeds our resources to be able to regulate. If it does exceed our resources to be able to like regulate ourselves and bring ourselves back down, then we will need another person to help us do that. And that can be via therapy. It can also just be, you know, animals are brilliant in trauma in terms of being there for co-regulation. Um, I had one client um, uh, who has um, who has anorexia who had a dog who would jump on her bed whenever she was having a nightmare and snuggle in and help keep her calm. Oh, so and he wasn't trained to do it. He just had a sense about, I better go make her feel better. Which is, you know, dogs are Beautiful. dogs. Dogs are heaven on earth, really. So my world, but um, yeah. So it would depend on on how how full on the memory is that arrives back in. So when we're talking about treatment options, we've mentioned 
EMDR and CBT. Can you talk a little bit more about the evidence base? What's got the biggest evidence base? It's an interesting one. I, you know, in I, I myself has have run four really large randomized controlled trials into the effective treatment of a number of different kind of um, mental health presentations. And I think the thing to remember about randomized controlled trials and evidence base is there's a pool of people it works for, and then and that's what everybody reports on, and that's what everybody gets really excited about. And then there's a pool of people it doesn't work mm. for. And you know, there was even this really one really large study which compared, um, and this was in drug and alcohol, but it compared 12 steps to CBT to interpersonal therapy, and they randomly allocated people to either of the three groups. Um, it was huge, thousands of people strong trial, and they showed that all the therapies were actually equal to each other. And they all worked for about the same number of people. Because if you randomly allocate people to therapy, then it's only going to work for the number of people that it works for and you're going to get a bunch of people who it doesn't work for. Mm -hmm. So we do have evidence-based therapies for sure, like the Maudsley model, you know, we have evidence-based therapies like CBTE, evidence-based therapies um, like, and so those those two, um, Maudsley and CBTE are for eating disorders. There's, there's growing evidence for schema therapy for eating disorders as well. Um, we know there's really good evidence for EMDR for trauma. There's really good evidence for narrative therapy and cognitive exposure therapy for trauma as well. And it's really, for me, working with a client, what's beholden upon me as the clinician is to be trained in all of those so that I listen to what has worked and hasn't worked with my clients beforehand mm. so that I can bring the next therapy to bear on this situation. Yeah. Does that and make that's sense? a really great take on RCTs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they they have such an important place, but not everything works for everybody. Yeah. And you know, for most people what I would say, what I say to all all people searching out, you know, a psychologist or a therapist to work with, whether they be friends, family or colleagues, <laughs> I say, you know, it's usually the third person that you talk to who who tends to be the good one. So, <laughs> to do your homework, be a really discerning consumer of the therapy that you're going to receive you know really um do your due diligence around whether or not you actually can work with this person or not can you trust them with you know the real treasures of your own childhood and experiences and the difficulties that you've been through and if you can't say yes to all of those then find another person you know i always say to people i work with we don't like everyone we meet and we don't have to you know they don't have to like me it's really okay to move on and find the right person for you because you're the most important person in that moment. Yeah, 100%. And when you address someone with an eating disorder and past traumas, yeah. how, how is that addressed? Do you, I guess it's different for everyone, as is the case in all these um, questions. Yeah. But like, do we address the underlying traumas first or you know, go straight for the eating disorder symptoms? Um, I love that question. I think it's really, it's a question that um, lots of clinicians ask me as well. So the, the first thing is we have to assess for safety and well-being. Yes. So um, if I have somebody who is really unwell in front of me, and by unwell, you know, in terms of eating disorders, we're talking really low BMI, um, you, know, heart, you know, heart rate's too low, those sorts of things, I've got to do something with that first. Like that would yes. be crazy of me not to. Yeah. Um, if I've got someone who's, you know, binging five times a day, of course I've got to do something about that before I do any other work. So what we do is we we settle the symptoms first. We get the symptoms settled. And that's a way that I can work with someone and they can build their trust in me as well. Because, 
no one's going to talk to me about their trauma if they think I don't care or they don't trust me or they don't know I'm going to reliably be there or maybe they think I'm just in it for the money or I'm just in it for my own ego. So settling the symptoms also allows me to work on rapport and trust with my clients or um, with the people that I'm working with. And then once we've got that under control, one of the questions I ask is, so why is the eating disorder here? Why do you think it's here? What's the what are you what's the job your eating disorder is trying to do in your world for you? Because yeah. the person's own idea about why they do what they do is far more um, knowledgeable and wise than my idea about what they do. You know, I trust my clients know themselves better than I do. Do they usually way. have like the insight to know it like to pinpoint the traumas? For the most part people for the most part clinicians say what's wrong with you? Whereas a trauma-informed approach to working with someone is to say, what's happened to you? Yeah. What's happened to you that's led your whole being to work out that having an eating disorder is the best way to stay alive? Yeah. That's the question I like to ask. That's what I'd like to know. And together, sometimes we can see the top layer of that, but we've got to kind of undo all the other kind of layers. And if we kind of find what the other layers are, then we can use other strategies, put other strategies in so that that client doesn't feel like I take the eating disorder away and they go into free fall of not being able to cope. Yes. And do you find that once the trauma is addressed that the other symptoms do go away on their own? It's an interesting one. I think what we tend to do is we seesaw with um, when I'm working with people who um, have an eating disorder and have some pretty significant underlying trauma. So sometimes we dip into doing the trauma work but that can make the eating disorder worse because that's the coping strategy, yeah. right? That's why it's there. Um, and so then we have to kind of go, whoa, hang on, we'll just push, press Put pause on the trauma work and then we'll see sorry into working on the end disorder and get that back under control again once we've got that back into sort of, you know, not like cured, parentheses again, but, yeah. you know, once we've got that bit under control and not so, um, you know, running rampant, then we can dip back into the trauma work. So it does tend to take a bit longer than if you were doing, you know, one of those presentations on their own. Yes. Um, and that's really normal and that's completely okay and there's no rush you yeah. know that's completely that's really really normal yeah so how do you know when you're healed like does it ever completely resolve I it's such a great question I mean what I usually if I've if I've just met someone who has an eating disorder um, what I'll do is I'll draw a pie chart and I'll say so can you draw the percentage on this chart that shows um, the amount of time that you spend not thinking about food or eating disorder and then can you draw the percentage on the chart where um, you are thinking about it and so so often for people it's like 80% thoughts eating disorder 20% not our aim is to kind of tip the balance to 80% not eating disorder 20% eating disorder yes. we live um, you know I'll, I'll out myself here I am a a staunch feminist we live in a society that really pressures women to look in a particular way mm -hmm. um, and that has changed across the years as well you know and yeah. um, and so I think that it's very very hard for um, people in our society to be different from the norm and to feel like they are accepted if they look different from the norm and so I think some of those pressures about you're supposed to be five foot ten and blonde and pretty and all those sorts of things and you're supposed to always look young right as yeah. well we do a lot of shaming about different from an ideal in our society so some of that actually some of the journey is about seeing that 
do you want to spend your whole life trying to look like an ideal or do you want to get on with life and do some really amazing exciting things yeah. with your life because we know this world needs the amazing exciting things that you're going to do not this world does not need you to look like another a one of the yeah ideal so yeah. the term are healed it's an interesting one because i think that it's hard to leave behind the trappings of socialization in our society so there's kind of that concept about healed parentheses again from um the eating disorder but then this concept about kind of healed from trauma and i guess one of the things we talk about in terms of healed from trauma is again about my language would be how much it pushes you around like how much you are reacting from a place of trauma versus reacting from a place of who you want to be in this world, your own values, do you like who you are? We, we all stumble and fall, we all get things wrong. But if you are able to spend more of your time reacting from a place and being in a place where you're okay with who you are and there is some peace with the injustices that have occurred to you, then that to me is like, you know, thumbs up all round. Mm. But if you are spending a lot of time in um, traumatic reactivities, so hypervigilant, afraid, flashbacks, you know, unsettledness, then we've got more work to do. And what about trauma leading to growth and positive change? You know, I would never um, advocate this as a way of, you know, being a deep, thoughtful person, but some of the gifts of trauma can be an understanding of the world at a very, very deep level and a philosophical approach to the world. Um, mm. and a real empathy for other people who've been through difficult times as well. And, and just to just finally, what would be kind of your message to someone who is a bit ambivalent or a bit scared to address their past traumas? Um, it is so normal to not want to go see a psychologist and to not want to do anything about it and to hope it goes away. I think that um, every single person has experienced that. It's, the, it's when it is pushing us around and making us do things that we don't really like or we don't wish to be doing, that is the time that you really want to go, maybe I need to go and sort this out with someone. And if you've made the decision that you would like to go and see someone, that's when you look after yourself and you make sure that the person you're going to sit down and talk to is the right person for you. And if they're not, go to the next person and go to the next person until you find the right person. That match is really, really key. And as I said before, you're the most important person in that room. Don't worry about the therapist feeling we're robust people. You're very <laughs> welcome to reject us and move on. Please do that. Look after yourself first. That's so good. Thanks for listening. If you're keen to find out more about the Birch Tree Centre, go to birchtreecentre.com.au. You'll also find links to some of the studies Sophie mentions in the show notes. And for more information about Inside Out, our website is insideoutinstitute.org.au. Catch you next time. If you or a loved one needs support, please head to our website, www.insideout.org.au or call the National Eating Disorders Helpline at Butterfly on 1800 ED HOPE or 1800 33 46 73.